Hello, and thanks for listening to This is Yoga Therapy. I'm your host, Michelle Lawrence. This podcast is a venue for sharing topics in the field of yoga therapy today. Whether you're a yoga teacher, yoga therapist, healthcare provider, or individual with curiosity, this is the place to learn about the latest ideas, personal healing stories, research, and work that is cutting edge and making a difference. While you're here, expect to expand your knowledge on the emerging field that is yoga therapy. In today's episode, I had the opportunity to interview Jess Tang. Jess is a yoga teacher based in Vail, Colorado, and also a student in our 800-hour yoga therapy certification program. In addition to her yoga therapy studies, Jess is also training in high perception work, learning how to receive and interpret messages from spirit, how to open, receive, and engage in Akashic records, and how to utilize astrology for greater healing. Jess is a first-generation Cambodian-American, and we're going to dive into her story today. Specifically, we'll talk about how inherited family trauma has impacted her life. We'll also discuss her experience of assimilation as a first-generation Cambodian-American, and what impact it has had on her search for belonging, connection, and self. We'll talk about her lived experience and what that means. And finally, we'll share how much yoga has positively impacted her life. Welcome to the podcast today, Jess. So let's start by sharing with our listeners what we mean by the term lived experience. And do lived experiences set us apart as unique individuals or do they deepen our connection to other humans or maybe they do both? So if you could share with us what you mean by lived experience, and then share with us what is your lived experience, and can you share a story that helps frame it for us? Yeah, I think that it's both. And I, for the entirety of my life, have tried to live under this understanding of both and, rather than the idea that it has to be one or the other. So I do believe that lived experiences also make up our unique lives, but then they also deepen our connection to each other and to our community. For me, what lived experience is, is the conscious act of really being a witness to what is happening in our lives. It's the culmination of our patterns of conditioning. It's what makes us who we are and how we got to what we're doing in our lives on a daily basis. And I really started to kind of understand what lived experience meant for me shortly after I began my yoga practice. And I didn't really start looking at it like from the lens of assimilation and being a first generation Cambodian until I was watching Pen15, which is a show on Hulu. It's a coming of age show about seventh graders and one of the main characters is an Asian American woman. And I really did not expect the show to impact me as much as it did. I figured starting it like this is going to be a great comedy. We're seventh graders. This is a really awkward time in our lives. And But there was a moment in one of the episodes titled Posh, where Maya, who is the Asian American seventh grader, volunteered, or not what she wasn't volunteered, but she was chosen to be Scary Spice in a skit where there were meant to be old Spice Girls who were trying to promote the 
benefits of milk for osteoporosis. So her white classmate said, Maya, you should be scary spice. And, and then they also assigned her the role of being a servant. And so she's going through some pretty cringeworthy experiences during that scene. But what really struck me, aside from the embarrassment that I felt, after that happened, she was staring at herself in the mirror and trying to just widen her eyes with her index and thumbs. She was looking at herself like tears glossed over her eyes. And then she flicked herself off, brandishing her middle finger towards herself with an incredible amount of anger. And I immediately had to pause the show and I just, I just broke down. I didn't really realize that that was something that other Asian American people did. Uh, it was something that I did to myself often up until I would say until the age of 26 or 27. So most of my entire life I've spent not being able to really look at myself in the mirror and which I believe is a result of trying so hard to assimilate into white American culture. This idea of just really not appreciating what I looked like or valued the diversity that I brought, unless it was something that offered me some sort of leverage, for example, getting into college. Yeah, so that was in 2008 when I was applying for college and affirmative action was a really big thing. And it might still be, I'm not sure because I haven't applied to an undergrad program in a while. But I remember some of my peers just not agreeing with it and thinking, well, why should we do that? I never really thought about it until I started really understanding what my lived experience was as a first-generation Cambodian-American trying to fit in so desperately with my peers. So when people do ask me, like, what do I mean by lived experience? It's being a bare witness to what's happening in your life rather than going with the flow and allowing the emotional waters to take over and you just ride those waves. It's really understanding, oh, well, what is happening right now? How am I feeling? And are these reactions, like, where are these reactions really coming from? There's, I believe that we all have some sort of inherited trauma that show up during our lived experiences. Well, thanks for setting the stage with that. That's really helpful as an introduction to what we're going to get into a bit more here. I'm wondering if you're willing to tell us more about some of the experiences in your parents' lives that contributed to sort of the binary nature of your life thus far, and then specifically how your inherited family trauma has impacted your life. Yeah. So my parents are both survivors of the Cambodian genocide that occurred in 1975 to 1979. My father, fortunately, was able to leave just before it happened, but there were consequences that came with that, which I can go into. My mother, unfortunately, lived through the entire experience with her seven siblings and her mother. And the stories that she shared with me were just, they've always stuck with me. And as a child listening to them growing up, I always really wanted to share our story with everyone. But my family really wasn't a fan of talking about it. They felt that now we're in the United States and we're putting that piece of our lives behind us. There's really no reason for us to dive deep into it. Some of the experiences, particularly with my father's, that I've really been trying to understand or I've gained more clarity and why I feel some of the things that I feel today 
you know, he left his mother and three siblings at the age of, I believe, 20 or 21, early 20s, without really being able to say goodbye to them. You know, he was a part of the Cambodian Navy. So they were on the ship as Pol Pot and his guerrilla army, the Khmer Rouge, took over the Cambodian government. So his captain was like, you know, we're not going back. So they immediately sailed to the United States instead of going back to Cambodia. And oftentimes when I leave my family, and I've never understood this until recently, I mean, I would say this week, as I'm looking at my lived experience and I'm understanding my inherited family trauma, when I would go back home, when I was living in college, my family lived in Bradenton, Florida. I was living in Tampa and I would visit them once every couple of weeks or so. And I would leave Bradenton just in tears. And I never knew where that was from. And I've been in therapy for several years now. And and my therapist and I have tried to understand why these tears were continually happening. And I'm currently reading right now, It Didn't Start With You by Mark Wolin. And he describes how when our parents or even our parents' parents, our, our grandmothers and grandfathers experience trauma, that gets embedded into our DNA. It changes the structure of our DNA. And it also triggers emotional reactions within our bodies that feel inexplicable. And that is exactly what I felt. And as I'm reading this book and trying to understand how my inherited trauma really shows up, it made sense to me why now I felt such despair and such guilt leaving them, because that's exactly what my father went through. At the young age of 20, he's having to leave his family without being able to say goodbye. And there's a bit of guilt there, knowing that he will be able to survive and not really knowing the fate of his family. And I think in many ways, I experience that on a daily basis, especially now that I'm living in Colorado. There sometimes feels like a wave of guilt that washes over me that I now understand as being something that's very related to my father leaving his family. And I think the awareness of that too is really is just what's allowing me to move with it, incorporate it into my life, apply the paradox of both and holding both of these truths together. My mother's trauma is far reaching. I mean, she... Fortunately enough, when the coup happened in Cambodia, Pol Pot drained the cities. He took out anyone who was in Phnom Penh or Siem Reap, the major cities in Cambodia, and he just sent them all into the countryside. Fortunately, my mother and her family were already living in the countryside. So they, I don't want to say they didn't experience the amount of terror as these rich families did in in Phnom Penh, because she definitely did. But it wasn't so much as a loss of these material items, as it was a distrust in the government. And I felt it when Donald Trump was elected in 2016. And again, like, didn't really realize what was happening until very recently, as I'm unearthing my inherited trauma. Because both Donald Trump and Pol Pot had very similar energies stepping into what they wanted. Pol Pot wanted to bring Cambodia back to a strictly opiate and rice producing country. He wanted to get rid of any sort of currency, class, education, religion. And while Donald Trump wasn't nearly as radical as what Pol Pot wanted, there was still that essence there, right? That essence of making America great again, transitioning from 
President Barack Obama, the first black president to this very, like, I don't want to use the word radical, but almost, yeah, very radical idea of bringing America back to pre-black president. And during that time, I felt an immense amount of fear, fear and distrust around of everyone who surrounded me. I probably didn't leave my house for three days after the election was called for him in 2016. And as I'm now, again, like going through my inherited trauma, I recognize those similarities and feeling triggered by his platform, his base, which was primarily these right-wing conservatives who believed in white supremacy and country that was pre-progressive as we were during President Barack Obama's term. And I couldn't understand or really explain why it felt life-threatening to me. There were moments where being out in public felt almost like I was living in a war zone. And again, I didn't really know where that was from until I held both of those experiences side by side understanding where my mother came from, the confusion that she must have felt as a child, seeing what was happening and watching members of her family just get torn away from her. Um, while that did not happen for us, in many ways, it like showed up symbolically in my body, you know, being away from my family, moving away and feeling that guilt of leaving them. And then at the same time, not really understanding why this fear was so embedded within my body. And now I truly understand, like, that's how my inherited trauma is showing up for me. Like, I was wildly triggered by this election of this very racist and misogynist human who was going to change democracy as I knew it. Even at that time, like, I knew that this was going to be something different. This would be This would usher us into an era that I was very not familiar with. But in many ways, I'm also very grateful because otherwise I would probably not be looking at my inherited trauma. So I do have him to thank for that. And I believe that you first discovered yoga around the same time too, right? And you shared with me that from then on, yoga showed you the path to non-duality. So maybe you can share with our listeners a little bit more specifically of what that means to you and how yoga offered you the tools to understand your triggers and providing a direct connection to unite your body and mind and what else the practice might have taught you. Yeah, the concept of non-duality didn't really make sense to me in 2016 when I first started practicing. And I I got into yoga in a very interesting path. I was practicing jujitsu at the time and my master was like, you should really do some yoga that'll help increase your flexibility. It'll help you get better in what you're doing. And, and so I, at that point had only taken three yoga classes during college. And so I said, you know what? I'll just take a teacher training. <laughs> and so it changed my life. And for a while, the concept of non-duality didn't really make sense to me because I have been living in that binary in trying to fit into white culture, but feeling like I had to choose between my ancestral heritage and belonging into my community. And so it it didn't make sense because it wasn't an experience that I had lived before. I had lived the idea of uh, you have to choose. And so it took quite a while and it wasn't me studying non-duality. It was me 
practicing. It was the physical asana of just showing up and being on my mat with no intention other than practicing. So as soon as my sadhana really took off where I was committed, I was practicing at least four times a week, going to group classes and feeling that community. And I started to notice how I could feel my mind and the emotions that were happening within my body come together and that it was okay for those things to happen. It was okay for me to feel in distress or angry, but then also feel calm and relaxed in my body or to feel like really powerful and really strong in what I was doing during vinyasa, but then also feeling really small. And with the consistent practice, I started, that is how I really started to understand non-duality and recognizing, oh, both of these things can exist at the same time. And there's nothing wrong with that. And so I would say like the physical asana is what really introduced me. It started to open the door into non-duality, offering me the invitation to hold both truths equally into my hands with That, it was incredible. It was an incredible gift. But I have to say, mantra is really what took me into this juicy chapter of my life, of unearthing inherited trauma, of recognizing that I can still embody and really love where I came from, my family's history, and my American culture and who I am today. Mantra is really what changed everything for me. And I think it was mantra meaning to traverse the mind. It offered me another invitation to sit, to chant, to honor my own voice. That was a really big piece because I chant with my harmonium at least once a day. And it's okay if my voice cracks. It's okay if I don't sound like this incredible singer that I would love to be one day. But it offered me that chance to sit and listen to my voice. It led me to standing greater into greater power of the value of my voice. And then also it offered me that heightened amount of meditation to where I could sit and observe, really and truly sit in the seat of the witness and notice the waves of thought that would come by or sometimes just the stillness of my emotional waters. And I think that that was just so incredibly powerful for me and and still continues to be. I mean, it's a journey that I'm on and, and I cherish every single day because it's never the same. It's never the same experience, but then in many ways it is. Yoga for me has truly been the gateway into recognizing where my inherited trauma shows up recognizing how much I have really cast aside my ancestral heritage in hopes of finding belonging and community. But then also like recognizing I am in a really unique position right now where I, an Americanized woman here living, but then I also have a very unique family history that I think blending together can really illustrate what non-duality means in yoga. I hope that makes sense. That's beautiful. It does. And it's beautiful. And you said it really well. And it also feels like a really nice segue into the last question that I like to ask each of our guests. 
And that is, as you know, because you've been through our programs, you're going through it now. We teach each of our students who are studying to become yoga therapists that one of the key pillars to doing the work of a yoga therapist, and really, I think the work of a yoga teacher too, right, is to first have your own steady daily sadhana or spiritual practice. And this sets the foundation and comes before holding space and doing any work with others. So I'd love for you to share with our listeners what your daily practice looks like and perhaps how it's changed or how it stayed the same too. Yeah. There's always some form of physical aspect to my daily sadhana, and it's never really longer than half an hour. I try, I'm a morning practicer. I wish I could come home from work in the evenings and do a little practice, but it hasn't happened for me yet. I'm hopeful that it will in the future. But it's always helpful for me to do it first thing in the morning and creating a space that feels intentional as well is really important for me. So I always have an altar set up. It'll usually contain some words of affirmation, a goddess. Right now I have Saraswati sitting on my altar and I use her as inspiration for creativity and for sound, the healing power of sound. So I usually just try to do some sort of physical practice for at least 10 minutes, no more than 30. And it's never the same either. Sometimes it's just some sun salutations. Sometimes it's me sitting in child's pose and crying for a little bit. (laughs) I really just allow my body to do what it needs that day. And then I would say the bulk of my sadhana is always chanting. Even if I can't bring myself to doing a physical practice. I'll at least sit in meditation for a couple of minutes before and set the intention before I start singing. And I always begin with a chant to Saraswati just to open the space and allow her to come through. And I go through whichever goddess comes up to me. I do a lot of work with goddesses. I find that their archetypal energy is so powerful, especially in traversing inherited family trauma because I think that they offer these different tools of navigating these waters, particularly through what my family went through. I think one of the things that I think about often when I was a child is, you know, we were Buddhist for a while when my grandmother was alive. And then when she passed, all of our ritual and practices passed with her. And I'll never forget my mother just sharing, like, there's not a God, because if there was one, what happened to us wouldn't have happened. And as a kid, it was such, it hurts and it hurts me to even repeat it now because I see the beauty of these goddesses showing up and Kali being the goddess of death, like death can happen and then life happens. So it for me has like bridged this gap between this existential crisis of nothing exists, nothing cares about us into this loving, really maternal energy that says bad things can happen, but I'm still here and I still love you and you are worthy and you are deserving. And so I often just allow whichever goddess to come through and flow through several chants. And that often takes me into half an hour, sometimes 45 minutes but I don't judge myself for it. I'm not, I don't time it. And sometimes if it's just three recitations of a mantra that comes through, that is what I honor. So it's been a really good practice in compassion and meeting yourself exactly where you are. Cause I sometimes feel like as yoga teachers, we have this expectation that we have to have an hour long practice and we have to sit in meditation for a while. And 
And it's really, for me, it's really not that. It's as long as I'm showing up and I'm meeting myself exactly where I am, then that is my sadhana. So uh, the chanting practice is truly something that anchors who I am today. And sometimes it doesn't come through with my harmonium. Sometimes it's me doing some bija mantras on my mala beads. So that's something I always highly recommend to students who are looking for an additional complexity, I guess, to their sadhana, you know, adding some sound, adding some mantra, because there's so much power in that. I, I think in my personal life, more power in my personal healing than just the physical. The physical, that is that gateway. And then the mantras, that really juicy part that like really introduces you to who you are. Well, thank you so much, Jess. It sounds amazing. And I also am eager to watch all of the amazing things that you're about to do as we step into the future here. And it was a real joy talking with you today. Thanks for sharing your story with us. Thank you for having me. This has been a production of Inner Peace Yoga Therapy. To learn more about us, visit innerpeaceyogatherapy.com. And by the way, the music that you're hearing today is from the John Stickley Trio.